0: Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Triumph Connects. In the
1: early stage of investing, I would rather try to understand the team, the co-founders, how they met, why are they doing this? One thing maybe, um, if I have to say about business plans, maybe I would ask one question, which is, why do you exist? So if you really think about it, If you're a CEO, building the best, right team is the most important thing that you have to do because you're not going to get involved in all the operations. If you understand the role of a CEO, you should never try to outsmart your
0: colleagues. Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Triumph Connects. To anyone who's been paying attention to the entertainment industry, you may notice that one country in Asia tends to have the capacity to break through to the larger international stage. If we look at Korea's cultural output from K-pop to the Oscar-winning best film Parasite to Netflix series Squid Games, Korea really does punch above its weight when it comes to content. My guest today, Jehoon Rim, proves that it's not just entertainment content that Korea is excelling at it these days. Jehoun, by many measures, is one of the most successful venture capitalists and CEOs in the world in the last 10 to 15 years. In 2012, with an initial fund of just 10 million US dollars, Jehoon formed K-Cube Ventures, which was a VC fund concentrating on very early stage tech founders. In 2021, when the fund was finally liquidated, it returned more than one billion US dollars. That is 100 times more than the initial investment with an annual internal rate of return over the lifetime of the fund of nearly 70%. Not satisfied with merely being one of the world's most successful venture capitalists, Jahoon decided in 2015 to take on the role of CEO of Cacao. At the time, he was 35 years old. This made him the youngest CEO among South Korea's top 500 companies. When he became the CEO of Kakao, it was mostly known for its mobile messenger app, Kakao Talk. But under his leadership, Kakao successfully expanded its business into finance, content, and the mobility industry by launching mobile products, which proved wildly popular with its user base. In the two and a half years of Jihoon's leadership, Kakao's revenues and operating profits more than doubled, making it a dominant player in the Korean tech space and making Jehoun as known in the Korean context as maybe Mark Zuckerberg is in our own. In our conversation here, we discuss what Jehoon looked for when he was investing in founders and how he took the lessons from that world and applied them in his role as CEO of Kakao. What he discovered is, and what he argues, is the most important thing in either role is to choose the right people and then basically just get out of the way. Let them do their work. Remove any obstacles from them doing the work and you'll be fine. We also discuss how people routinely misunderstand the nature and the scope of the power of tech companies, which he recognizes as today having too much power. Finally, we explore why it is that Korean content has been so successful on the international entertainment stage. Jehoon is smart, articulate, highly accomplished, and wonderfully humble in this discussion. His candor and honesty is really refreshing. He's proof that wisdom does not need to necessarily rely on age. This episode is, in my mind, really an exemplar of how a good leader sees the world and their role in it. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, and without any further ado, I bring you Jehoon Rim. Jehoon Rim, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thanks for having me, Matt. Good to be here. Uh, It's great to have you here. The last time we were together, or one of the last times we were together, we were sitting on a rooftop bar uh, in the old town in Panama City. Right, exactly. And we were watching the kind of sunset over the city. It was a fantastic place. And you started telling me a little bit about your life and what you've done. And I thought, I've got to get this guy on the podcast. I've got to have him. So I, I want to start just by asking you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. What is a kind of mini biography of Jahoon Ribb? You know, and and maybe you can talk a little bit about your inf- the inflection points that you see in your own life. So, I'd love for you to start like where you were born, you know, what your parents did, where did you go to school, etc. And we'll just build from there.
1: Okay, okay. Um, actually that uh, could take like an hour only for the bio, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll try to keep it simple. So basically, you know, I was born and raised in Seoul, South Korea. Um, And I graduated from an engineering school called KAIST. So it's like an MIT version of South Korea. And then I went to a tech company. It's like a natural kind of way, you know, after graduation. Um, It's a tech company called Naver, which is the number one search engine still in South Korea. It's not Google. Um, Naver has like 70% of the market share. And then um, out of nowhere, you know, I just thought, uh, why not try, you know, management consulting? Because that was 2005 or six, Um, everybody, you know, the smart people that I knew were talking highly of it. And they were like, you know, this is a really cool place to go. And I was like, okay, why not try? And then I went to the Boston Consulting Group and I realized that uh, I didn't really like the work environment there and the job that I was doing there. So um, out of nowhere, again, I was talking to one of my friends and he was telling me, hey, you know what? I think venture capital might well suit you. And I was like, what is venture capital? I didn't even know what venture capital was at that time. So I had to Google it. Um, And I kind of realized (laughs) that it was, whoa, you know what? This is like a new kind of finance that, you know, can't invest at a very early stage of a company. So I got interested and, you know, um, I got to meet one of the partners at SoftBank Ventures. um, And um, he really liked me and he hired me so that was 2007 and from that point um i've been a venture capitalist for almost 10 years uh, while i was a venture capitalist um you know there's a huge part of luck when it comes to you know being a successful venture capitalist and i was very lucky and many of the investment that i made became successful so i had an opportunity to you know begin my own vc firm in 2012. uh it's called kq ventures and then again um a lot of the investment became very successful, unicorns and, and so on. And out of nowhere, again, um, the board and the chairman of Kakao Corp, which is one of the largest technology companies in South Korea, uh, approached me and they were telling me that um, they wanted me as their CEO. And I was like, wait, um, I'm a venture capitalist. I'm happy. Uh, why do I have to you know lead like a big, big tech company? It seems it's a public company. So, you know, the obligations are going to be totally different, the responsibilities. And I was like, huh, oh, let me think about it. And then again, uh, why not try? Uh, so, you know, I, I led that company for about like three years. Luckily enough, you know, uh, the results were pretty good. And then um, I resigned and moved to the United States. So I moved to New York. And um, again, you know, uh, it was not planned. An unexpected opportunity came to me. So, Um, I was able to teach at NYU
0: Stern School of Business, and I pretty much enjoy my life. So uh, we're going to unpack a lot of that because there's a (laughs) lot there. There's a lot there. So let's go back. I want to ask you, let's assume that it didn't have anything to do with uh, BCG, the Boston Consulting Group itself. But what was it about consulting that you didn't? It didn't fit you. So you 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 graduate from the equivalent of kind of MIT. It's a tech university. You go to work for a for a firm that is the the leading search firm in in Korea. You you switch to becoming a consultant and. You only, you only were a consultant for like, what, nine months, 10 months? 10 months, exactly. So there must have been something that you really didn't like about it. So so what was it about being a consultant? Because, you know, a lot of our students, you know, the consultants, or they work for consultants, or they think they're going to be consultants, what was it that you didn't like? I mean,
1: I'm not condemning the consulting industry as a whole. Um, it didn't really fit well with me. That's what I'm trying to say, because it could be a good career track for example it could be like a good stepping stone but maybe it's because I already had some experience in the tech industry Uh, maybe because of that uh, what I was doing at a consulting company basically it's you know creating a lot of presentation decks right Uh, there are a lot of smart people uh, and then come up with a really nice presentation deck and if you really think about it a lot of knowledge actually comes from the client Right, it's not that the clients are stupid or they're not knowledgeable. It's the consultants have a really good skill set, you know, to kind of organize everything and come up with some insightful recommendations. But at the end of the day, actually, it's the clients who have to implement that. And I kind of felt that I'm not really adding a lot of value in this process. That I would rather do something more tangible rather than create a bunch of decks. So. Um, I think that's because you know, at a tech company when I was working, um, I could see the results right away. Like our team was working on something, and boom, it boomed. Or the customer hated it. Uh, so so I, I can see what's going on. Versus if you're a consultant, like basically you're working, creating PowerPoint decks, and then you deliver it, and then you leave. And it's like, well, what am I doing,
0: right? So so you you needed to uh, you needed a quicker feedback you needed quicker feedback on your impact maybe and and maybe that's, that's a way to think about it
1: that's true that's true and also the fact again i hear that now it has changed a lot but that was like almost 20 years ago like 17 years ago right um at that time the consulting firms especially the so-called big three the McKinsey, bcg and bain they had some kind of elitism in a way so they were thinking that they were smarter than the clients right. and i i didn't really like that attitude it was like hey really you know that person over there has like 20 years of experience and if you really think about it you gained this knowledge by interviewing that person and you think that you are you know more smarter or you know more than you know that person about this industry and I I didn't really like that attitude now I hear that it has changed but long back ago uh you know consultants were pretty cocky
0: Yeah. Masters of the universe, right? They, they knew, they knew more than their client. That's interesting. So, so you had, you had this value of of the people uh, uh, actually doing the work. And it's interesting because you went on, you know, you became a VC investor. Um, and you you work for SoftBank for a while, and then you, you formed your own firm, this KQ Ventures, right? Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, you focused on kind of pre, on the pre-product phase. So this is mm-hmm. super early in the process. Right. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about what pre-product really means, and what was it about this stage in the development of companies? that you found a particularly kind of, you had the competitive, you had some sort of competitive advantage there uh, versus your peers. So what, what made it attractive for you? This pre-product phase, what is it and what made it attractive? Uh, That's a good question. Um, For me, actually, I had
1: to kind of differentiate myself, right? I'm starting a new VC. There were larger VCs in the industry who have played out for like tens or twenties years. So um, if you really think about it, once a startup gains traction, a lot of VCs chase them, right, then money becomes a commodity. So to me, it was like, how can I differentiate myself, not say that, you know, I also have like a smaller check compared to the large VCs. Um, And the other thing was that I kind of realized that it's really difficult to predict who's going to win, you know, the market. So If it's that difficult anyway, why don't you go at the earliest moment, even before the product, because actually a lot of startups pivot their product and, you know, judging the business plan at that time, or, you know, looking at the prototype might not be the best way to judge a startup. And you get like a premium because you are literally, you know, discussing uh, the investment at the very early stage of the company and the founders really... You know, um, think highly of you that you're doing that. So, so they appreciate it, and the valuation, of course, accordingly goes really low. So that was like one of the strategy uh, that I had when I was, you know, beginning my own startup because the fund size was not that big. It was it began with a ten million dollar fund. So it's not that we had a lot of money. So I had to act differently. But anyways, I had a huge belief that. At the end of the day,
0: it's investing in the people. Okay, so let's think about that for a second. So, first of all, you're extremely humble. So, I, I love this about you, actually. So, you started with ten million. Um, when when you left, what was what was the fund? So, um,
1: yeah, it's a little bit humbling, but you know, again, huge luck part. Uh, that ten million fund um, was dissolved at over one billion dollars. So, we were able to return more than one billion dollars to the investors the so-called IRR was like 70% over the 10-year span. Actually, it dissolved last year, 2021. So it was like the most successful VC fund in South Korea, actually, but again, you know, um, all entrepreneurs did everything, right? I only, you know, picked the entrepreneurs and gave a little bit of money to them and they created like unicorns and unbelievable great tech
0: companies let Let me ask about that a second, because it's you know now, in this space, and you know almost infinitely no more about it than I do, but it looks like now a lot of people that invest in the really early phases, there's a kind of merging between them and kind of an incubator a lot of a lot of them offer more than just a little bit of money at the beginning, but they offer them mentoring and et cetera at k was that a strategy or did you kind of pick the people and then just let them go and see what happened? Um, not necessarily.
1: I'm not a huge believer that an entrepreneur should be taught or led by, you know, more experienced VCs. Um, maybe if that's the case, if you, you know, it, may, it might make you feel better. I see a lot of VCs, for example, talking about how they are helping their startups and that they help them develop a strategy, help them come up with a nice feature. And in my mind, it's like, did you really pick the right entrepreneur? You know, if you're that good, why don't you do your own startup, right? So in my mind, of course, they can be a little bit less experienced. But if you pick the right team, if you pick the right founders, uh, they will learn incredibly fast. So I do not believe that, you know, there's a lot of operational you know help that you have to give to the founders um and especially when it comes you know vcs helping out startups um i don't i'm not a huge believer in that what we did at kq ventures actually was slightly different we created a cohort of entrepreneurs so we made sure that you're not alone all the entrepreneurs that were funded by us are also struggling. They're having their own ups and downs. So every month we created, you know, we offered like a nice dinner. Uh, We provided them with a space. So they came in, we didn't really lead the session. We did almost nothing other than, you know, providing food and a place. And they came in, they drank, you know, they were having conversation with other entrepreneurs and making sure that they can reach out to each other uh, rather than, you know, asking for help to the VC. And later on, and in the hindsight, I hear a lot of great stories from the founders that actually that helped
0: tremendously. Oh, so that's fascinating. So so rather than have a kind of formal incubation period, you're, but what what you did, it sounds like what was key is you just provided a networking opportunity for them so they didn't feel alone and they could bounce mm-hmm. ideas off of each other about challenges that they were facing at the same time. So that- Exactly. That, that sounds great. So let me tell you, I mean, by any measure, I mean, by any measure, you were hugely successful as a venture capitalist. We'll, we'll, we might talk a little bit about luck later, but by any measure, you were hugely successful. So I want you to think, if you think about- picking an investment picking somebody to invest in we can kind of think at least in my simplistic way i think of dividing the kind of characteristics of potential targets for investment into three kind of buckets and one is kind of what do i look, i look at their business model their idea their value proposition mm-hmm. what what does it look like does it make sense to me is there something there the second might be what are the qualities of the founders themselves Mm -hmm. So apart from their idea, what are the people like, right? What are the people like? And then maybe the third is what's the nature of the market they want to play in? So do Mm -hmm. I believe in the market they want to play in? So, so I want to, I want to spend a little bit of time on each one. I'm going to try to, I mean, again, just to try to learn from you. So what would be the characteristics of the business plan or the idea, which would make you, uh, Pay attention which would pique your interest what, what what is it about you i mean you must have seen thousands of these pitches mm-hmm. right what wh- is there something about the business plan or idea that would interest you as a pattern actually uh, i'm not a, like a huge believer and i don't put a lot of weight
1: on business plans and that's the reason uh one of the key strategies of my you know early stage vc fund was investing in pre-product stage Um, sometimes even before they had a business plan. We were just having conversations and then um, I decided to invest. And I'll I'll tell you why. Because first, coming up with a very reasonable and nice business plan is relatively easy. If you're smart and if you're trained well, um, you can come up with a pretty good business plan. That doesn't mean that you're gonna be successful when you're
0: doing a startup, right? May I may I suggest that this is similar to what you were saying about consultants, right? Consultants can come up with an easy plan, right? If you're smart and you're well-educated. So, so go, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it just.
1: Actually, you know, coming up with a nice uh, business plan is the easy part of doing a startup. There's so much more that are not covered, you know, in our conversation, in the media, and that's actually implementing and building a team of a startup. So that doesn't really get into the business plan. So in the early stage of investing, I would rather try to understand the team, the co-founders, how they met, why are they doing this? One thing maybe um, if I have to say about business plans, maybe I would ask one question, which is why do you exist? So, I mean, what's one reason that you should exist? What's one reason? A customer should pick you. It's not about the market analysis. It's not about you know um, the product features that you're coming up. It's like, why do you need to exist? That uh, leads to a very you know interesting conversations. Okay, so
0: that's that, I mean that's that's beautiful. I love that question. Um, it's very uh, existential, uh, and also it gets to the core of of what's going on. So you'd see a thousand of these. You might ask the question. Uh, why do you exist? And then you said it's the characteristics of the founders. So you were, you were, you again, saw lots of people come in. What, what would be the characteristics I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what your secret sauce is, right? What you would see all these founders, what would you, what would you go? What characteristics of them would you would go? Ah, here's somebody I I'm interested in. Here's a team I'm interested in. What would it be? Uh, Maybe,
1: Judging whether they are crazy enough? <laughs> what? Tell me, what do you mean? Okay, uh, I'll try to unfold my thoughts. Um, I'm not literally talking about the craziness, but their uniqueness. Um, again, understanding why they're doing this. Because if you really think about it, doing a startup might not be a very rational thing to do, especially if you're competing against the big companies. Maybe the rational conclusion is that you shouldn't do it what if Google jumps into this vertical, then you're dead. So actually, an entrepreneur will get pushed back a lot throughout the whole uh, period. Still, he or she really has to make decisions and stick to the original thoughts, uh, understanding why they were doing it. And in the beginning, it could be thought as a very irrational, unbelievable initiative, but eventually, if you put your heads down and work diligently and really bring value to the customers in three years, in five years, that could turn out to be enormous, very huge and very successful. So um, that's like one of the reasons I, I, I'm not really just trying to find the smartest people because they, you know finding smart people is pretty easy. There, there are many, many, many smart people, but I'm trying to understand whether this person will go through the whole journey of a startup whether this person is tenacious enough and that could be you know presented in a way uh, of craziness that's the reason i'm saying that um, maybe trying to judge whether this person is crazy enough or not could be one way to
0: look at it okay judging how tenacious they're going to be uh, with the idea all right interesting so so the, the, the first one is, why do you exist? Second is, are you crazy enough for me to be interested in you? Uh, uh, and, the third, and the third one, how about the market? What characteristics of the market? Would there be ideas and people that come to you and you just say, that it, the market is just not attractive. I don't, I don't see it. You know, was there, what about the market that would attract you?
1: Of course, there's a factor. Uh, I have to admit that I also look into the market because some markets, for example, is a little bit more complicated or unattractive. For example, the gig economy, the so-called gig economy um, is a little bit more difficult than the pure digital tech companies uh, to have great margins in a sense, because basically you're dealing with people. That's the reason I believe the TaskRabbit or Handy, those are the gig economy companies in the United States. if you look at them, um, you know they're not growing as fast as others. Their margins are not great. So those are the nature of the businesses, for example. But that's like one thing, but I don't try to predict uh, whether this is gonna be a good market or not because there are so many examples that a startup created a whole new market. At the time when a VC was looking at the startup, for example, um, I'll be honest, for example, um, I wasn't sure if Uber or Airbnb would be this big. If you think about the value proposition, it's like, hey, uh, why don't you, you know, bring in a stranger to your house? Why don't you, you know, get into another stranger's car? Um, Snap also, Uh, what about sending a message that will disappear automatically? If you, if you try to think rationally it's a little bit difficult to comprehend those businesses right so trying to analyze the market and judge it too much uh, could be actually counterproductive as the VC so again, I would rather try to understand what's like one reason that this might work or not and. If it really has to be something related to the market, I would try to understand whether this has a potential to be a big market or not. A potential, not trying to judge it by the current standards, but like in three, five years, let's assume that all the assumptions that the founders, you know, uh, were delivering comes out to be true, then how big is it? So Great. those kind of exercises, I do it, but I don't just look into the market and say, hey, this is a small market. This is a big market uh, because there's a chance that you would get
0: it wrong. And so you project in the future, if what they're saying is, works out to be true, then how big is the market going to be? Correct.
1: And also, again, there's, there's going to be a large portion that a market could you know, be created even though I don't understand it. Yeah. So, so you only have to be humbled if you're a VC.
0: Absolutely. So of the three, the business plan, founders, the quality of the founders, and the characteristics of the market, it sounds like for you, and I've heard you say this by far, the most important thing are the characteristics of the founders. Is that right?
1: If you're, yeah, that's correct. If you're an early stage you know, uh, investor. Okay.
0: And you got those those crazy people together. You put them in a room and gave them a meal and the magic happened. Kind of, kind
1: of, you know, like it's not really that they are discussing the products if you really think about it. It's giving them the sense of belonging. And again, the startup journey is incredibly difficult if you think about it. Mm. It's a lonely job. You have to make the call. And there are so many people that you have to be responsible for. But once you realize that you're not alone, that they're all your fellow entrepreneurs are going through the same difficulties, that itself gives you a big comfort. And I believe that you know our so-called gatherings, the monthly gatherings, we called it as a family, but anyways, um, that gave them um, the confidence that they can go on.
0: A sense of community, a sense of shared, mm-hmm. a shared experiences. Absolutely. Exactly. So, so you were famous in the industry, uh, and again, I know you're very humble, but you were famous in the industry. And, and at the same time, you say that you know, luck played a huge part in your success. Now, you know, one of the things I teach, people listening might know this, you know, I, I teach how the mind essentially makes sense of the world through really simple stories. And, and we, we, we get lots of facts and we create stories that make sense to us and, and those stories are based on our pre-existing beliefs and our implicit theories about how the world works, et etc. The problem with this is usually our stories don't have very big a very big role for luck or chance. It's usually not the story that we tell ourselves. Instead, we usually construct kind of post stories to explain the success or failure we observed. And, and so one of the things that I find really refreshing, with you is your recognition of the amount of of randomness or luck that you had uh, in your story. But if you had to put a number on what proportion of the variance of success in VCs are due to luck versus skill, right? What proportion is due to luck and what proportion is due to skill? That's a very interesting question. Um, maybe
1: 70% is luck or even more. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is Again, it's not only about the product, but one thing that we don't discuss regularly is the people side of the business. What I mean by this is we only look into the product and say, hey, this is a really good value proposition. Oh, this feature is really great. But the way a startup grows, I can guarantee you that it doesn't play out as they planned out in the beginning, as they have written in the business plan, I'm pretty sure that it was totally different. And throughout the journey, actually, what really mattered, for example, could be you went to a network event, for example, and then you were introduced to an engineer and that engineer became your CTO. That's a luck part, for example. Without that person joining your company at the right time, there's a high chance that you would just, you know, run out of business, uh, or for example, all, all out of nowhere, a business person, you know, visited your company and that person joined and that person, you know, you've totally transitioned your product to a business. So, so th- these kind of things really happen a lot, uh, but we really never discuss it. So there's like the people's side of the story for every successful startup, and if you really think about it, it's a series of luck. So what I often tell all my students is that if you really think about it, for all the successful startups, I'm pretty sure that you can come up with a novel. You know, you can write a novel for each successful startup because pretty much there's going to be the ups and downs, there's going to be the drama, there's going to be the conflict between the co-founders, the conflict between the early employees and the founders you know, very like one of the co-founders leaving the company. So there can be so much happening in that, you know, um, startup, but we never talk about those. We think that if we have like a good team and if we have a nice business plan, magically, you know, that will give you success. It's it's nothing like that. So that's the reason I'm saying that, you know, at least 70% is luck. Um, of course, maybe the prerequisite is, you know, being smart, you know, having a great team, have a, having a great tenacious team, that's going to be a prerequisite. But on top of that, how do you, you know, uh, what does what does it bring, you know, the success? It's going to be luck.
0: Yeah. If you're ready. Yeah. If you're ready. A piece of the puzzle fits in that is missing. You didn't even know it was missing. And then suddenly it's there and and, and it explodes, right? It, go, it just Exactly. Explodes. Exactly.
1: I mean, many of the investments, many of the investments that actually I made at the time that we were discussing the business, actually, um, you know, we were discussing something else. The company realized their path, they evolved. So one of the things that we also underestimate is that how well
0: a startup can evolve and grow. So that's a different story. And I guess when you're investing in the people, I mean, you tell a really interesting story. I've heard you say... That you had a particular invest a founder that you were interested in you didn't believe in their idea but you said when you fail with this one let me in on the next idea is that right did i get tell that story correct
1: yeah that's correct um yeah um that was the famous company called tunamo and they are you know doing a product called Upbit. Um, now it's a cryptocurrency exchange, but they also have you know other like stock trading you know platform and they have other financial um, services. But anyways, they began as a news recommendation service. and I wasn't that sure that actually, I was pretty sure that news recommendation uh, would not work very well in South Korea because the media uh, was really powerful one, too. Uh, the search engine that I actually worked for neighbor they purchased all the content uh, from all the media companies and they provided the best search results, so I was like um how can you really win, you know this large you know tech company, but still I loved you know the founder. Uh, he had great reputation, he was an engineer, so whatever you know he thinks about it, he just builds it within like. Weeks he just builds it and tests it out. So I was like, you know what? I really want to invest in you, um but you know I'm not a huge fan of this idea. So just you know make a promise to me that you will not stick to this for like three five years. If you realize that this is not working, uh, let's try to pivot. And he was okay with that. And he was a smart person, right? So of course, um, he was working with the news recommendation um, service for maybe three months, and then he realized that this is not a thing. So he moved on to another thing. Actually, he pivoted like three more times. But anyways, um, eventually he got it right. He became like a unicorn. Uh, now it's valued more than ten billion dollars.
0: Um, like a
1: huge success.
0: So, so here's here's the thing that's a little bit of a puzzle to me about uh, about you. you. We can talk about it. So you're hugely successful as a VC guy, and you you are you make a reputation for yourself the company's doing great, and you decide, so Cacao uh, comes to you and says, hey, be our CEO. And you say, yeah, sure, why not? And, and that seems like a, a big change going from an investor to a CEO. And on the surface, you know, these roles require a lot of different skill sets. Um, and there's substantial areas, I would argue, that those sets don't really intersect very much being a successful CEO, and a, but you've said somewhere where you think that they actually do, and you think a key skill in both is choosing choosing people. We've talked about how you choose people at the VC world. What, what do you mean when you say the key role? In fact, I've heard you say the key role of a CEO is choosing the right people. What do you mean when you say that?
1: If you really think about it, of course the conventional thought is gonna be running a operation is gonna to be totally different from running you know, a VC. For those who believe that VC is picking, you know, looking into the business plans and making the market analysis and trying to figure it out, you know, what's the most profitable business on paper, for those people, it could be a totally different world running a business versus running a VC. But as I discussed before, I believe that the most successful early stage VCs should be the. You know, the most successful ones are the VCs who are able to pick the winners, the people, really understanding what makes a good CEO. So if you really think about running a big, large company, at that time, already the company Cacao had 3,000 or more employees. It was a publicly traded company. At that time, the market cap was around uh, $6 billion. So it was a big company, if you think about it. But what does a CEO do? If you think about it, uh, you know, a CEO shouldn't really get involved in every business, they shouldn't. It's making big decisions and setting the direction of course. That's a very important part of a CEO, you know, setting the direction of the company, making big decisions. But how often does that happen if you really think about it? If a very big direction change happens like every week, Uh, That means the company is totally screwed up, right? So those are very important inflection points and you have to get it right. So of course that's important, but the the, the, the most of the time that a CEO does is motivating your team, letting them do their work, removing the obstacles that your colleagues are facing. So if you really think about it, if you're a CEO building the best right team is the most important thing that you have to do because you're not gonna get involved in all the operations. So if you're the CEO, maybe picking the right senior vice presidents, maybe it could be seven to 10 senior vice presidents. Those are the people that you're gonna work on like almost every day. Maybe uh, uh, one layer below that senior vice president, maybe it's gonna be the VPs, uh, maybe you could also reach out to them and have a lot of conversation, but you will not go to down to the individual contributors, or you will not go down to the team leaders and you know try to get involved in the businesses because once you do that actually, you're doing a lot of more harm to the company rather than you know doing good. Actually, the CEO, uh, once you pick the right people, then all your work is letting them do their work and let them shine, create the environment. For them to outperform. Right. So, in that sense, if you really think about it, a CEO job is hiring and firing people, getting the right team, building the right team, building the culture. So, in that sense, um, I didn't think that it's going to be totally different. Of course, it's different, but I didn't think that it's like totally apples to oranges. I thought that, okay, at the end of the day, you're dealing with people, you're managing people, you're leading
0: people. Um, that's, the most important job of a CEO. Okay, for me, I completely agree with you. That's in my experience, that's what differentiates good CEOs from bad CEOs is to the extent how much do they recognize that their job is to facilitate other people's work. Now, getting the right people though is one thing and keeping them aligned is another thing, right? And so you were 35 I think when you took over as a CEO, is that right? So. I, I'm guessing that a 35-year-old CEO of a big tech company in the Korean context, that's not that common. Am I right? True. All of the
1: executives were older than me. Okay. So
0: everybody's older than you, more experienced, in a culture that that uh, highly values experience and seniority. So how did how did you... I mean, it must have been really difficult. How do you keep these really smart people... How did you how did you end up aligning them? What what tool did you use to make sure that you 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 could understand? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of you. You're at a board meeting, and you have you know your seven, eight, nine EVPs sitting around the the table. They're all older than you. They all have experience, and you're try, You know, is that where the leadership happens, or where did it happen for you?
1: So I think again, if you understand the role of a CEO you should never try to outsmart your colleagues your, for example one might try to prove themselves as ceo by showing how smart he or she is if i went through that route i'm pretty sure that it would you know have become like a disaster in my case i just you know there was a reason the board picked me at that time cacao was in crisis the revenue and operating income and the stock price all were Declining, so it was a crisis. Everybody knew it, so it was a little bit easier for me to build a rapport with my senior vice presidents. So I went there and had a lot of one-on-ones, and I told them that I'm here to help you. Let me find a way to help you. What do you need? And I believe one-on-ones are extremely powerful, not only for the CEOs but even for any kind of team leaders, because if you really think about it a lot of discussions don't happen when you're having an official meeting. Hmm. What I'm trying to say here is that let's assume that a senior vice president comes with his or her team and delivers a presentation, actually everyone feels the pressure. Everyone feels that they're being judged on their comments. It's not really, even though we always claim that we're trying our best to create a safe environment, in your inner mind, you're a little bit afraid, right? Even though you're a senior vice president, even though you're an executive. And sometimes you might not want to share your vulnerabilities, or you might not want to share some of your ideas that, for example, you might think that there's a chance that this might fail and you don't want to share it with your team. It's possible, we're all human. But if you're doing like one-on-ones, um, those conversations can easily you know, come out. So what I did is I had regular one-on-ones almost weekly, sometimes bi-weekly with all of my senior vice presidents. And we never did it at a meeting room. We sat on a couch or sometimes we went to the rooftop. Um, actually, sometimes we went on a walk. So for an hour, or sometimes even two hours, we just talked. And if you really think about it, all those executives are very competent. They are smart. They have the competence. It's going to be like maybe one or two things that they really want to discuss rather than the whole business plan, if you think about it. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that you hear them out, you know, trying to understand what's in his or her mind. uh, That's the key in aligning those people, you know, your colleagues um, to the direction of the company. So that was extremely useful i think maybe it's like the most important thing that i did uh while i was leading a ton of executives at cacao and also they are people right so 101 makes it more personal and they understand that you know they're not only representing a business but they're also people they're human beings so having those random conversations and getting to know them much
0: better um, helped a lot. Did it? Did it make? I mean, presumably you had to let people go as well, right? Did did sure. getting to know them personally in these one-on-ones does that make it easier or harder?
1: Uh, in my case, I was like, I was in a slightly different position because I came from the outside, right? Right. So during the first maybe three months, I think uh, I really focused on building the team maybe three to maximum six months. So a lot of relocation uh, happened during that period. Okay. So the one-on-ones that were super effective to lead, you know, the company were after that. After so that. once I, once I yeah. set up my team, uh, then it's making sure that, you know, uh, I'm totally backing you. Uh, let me know what kind of you know obstacles I have to remove. Again, you, you pointed out a great, point for example if you don't even know whether you know you're gonna keep this person or not that's a totally different story right
0: okay so again you're being very humble you said it did all right after you took over so explain to us you were a ceo for three years right three mm-hmm. a little over three years uh, a little bit less than three years a little actually. less than three uh-huh. years okay and so things were going down market cap was going down uh revenues were going down when you took over It was around six billion in revenue, you said at that time. Mm -hmm. And what was it when you left less than three years later? It was around $15 billion. I think the
1: revenue operating income, the stock price, uh, more than doubled. And I left the company and the company, you know, did really well after I left the company too, uh, which was great. Right? So the company, uh, went up to like $50 billion, uh, recently you know, all the tech companies around the globe uh, are facing some crash, right? So now it's a little bit more than $30 billion, but again, it's a
0: remarkable company. Yeah. So uh, um, amazing turnaround. And it sounds like to me that you, I'm, I'm going to guess that what you would say is what you did was unleash the, the, the power that was already there with the team. You, you, you cleared the decks for them to do what they did best now. Again, you seem to have timed your, your you know, you left at that point, you exited. So what advice would you give? I mean, there's CEOs listening to this, there's CEOs that listen to the podcast. When do you know it's time to go as a CEO? I mean, it's your personal choice.
1: Um, to me, to begin with actually, becoming a CEO of a large public company was not like my dream job, to begin with, right? I was a VC. Um, I was in the tech industry, um, so it was a little bit easier for me to leave. Uh, once I thought that I did the mandate that I was given, as we discussed uh, right before this, you know, um, all the numbers were great. Um, I could see the growth, so I was like, I might not be needed anymore. Um, I did my job. Uh, another person could also, you know continue this operation it's not like we're changing the direction it's just continuing on and doubling down on the direction that we already set up so to me it was a a pretty easy new departure i was like you know i did my job um i'm not a huge fan of becoming like a a public ceo uh, of a huge tech company so okay i'm gonna leave uh let's just go to the states and see what's there so for me, it was easy. But again, if you try to generalize this and try to give advice to the CEOs, I think you will realize uh, when is the time to leave. Once you understand that you are not fully motivated, you know, when you wake up in the morning and if you feel like you're not adding value to the company and that you're not that excited that you're doing something, um, maybe that's the time that you should leave. I was like that. I was like, oh, you know what? The company's doing really well. Um, what am I doing now? Right. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of changes made. The uh, new new team, new direction. A lot of products got killed because I believe that you know those are not a uh, good opportunity. And then now, yeah, everything seems on track. So I'm like, oh, the CEO, you know, it's a little bit
0: boring now. <laughs> so you notice it's, it's a bit like uh, why you didn't like, again, I keep going back to the consulting, but when you didn't think that you were adding value, it just wasn't that interesting anymore. And so for the CEO, when you stopped thinking that you were adding value, somebody else could do this, you, you became a little bit bored and left. Correct. Okay. Now, I want to talk about the tech industry a little bit. And I've I've heard you say in other audiences that you sometimes are frustrated by the way the media portrays or talks about the tech industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. What do you think they get wrong or what do you think is misleading in the way they report about the tech industry, if we think about the media?
1: I think a lot of the experts, so-called experts, get it wrong in both extreme ways. So sometimes they underestimate the power of tech. And they just try to, they just simplify too much. For example, they just say that, you know, Uber is just an app that calls taxi. Like 10 years ago, there were a lot of experts saying that, you know, Facebook is not a tech company. It's just a social network that connects friends. And like 10 years ago, a lot of people said that Amazon is not really a tech company but an e-commerce website, right? And I'm like, no, 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 you're not understanding the power of tech. For one, to begin with, actually, they have great talent. Um, maybe the most concentrated, smartest people are in tech you know, um, globally, so they can evolve. Trying to judge a company at a single moment might not be the smartest thing to do because they can evolve. That's one thing. The second thing is that people really underestimate the power of being able to reach out to the massive users how many daily active users does facebook have in the united states 200 um how much is that 200 million right is it million yeah 200 million and, and and population is 300 million if you think about it so nearly like 70% of the people are you know using facebook every day like multiple times a day if you really think about it that's an opportunity for facebook to push you something it could be whatever content that they want, and if you really think about it, um, when in our business history did a company have that much power or that you know powerful? Think of any kind of you know brands that you love and think how they are trying to reach you. They still sometimes send physical mails to you. Uh, they try to you know. Um, get the email or try to send some newsletter to you, uh, which directly goes to your spam uh, filter. So for normal companies, for an average company, it's extremely difficult and expensive to reach out to customers versus to a lot of tech companies. You are automatically doing that like multiple times a day. um, And that gives them enormous power. So that's like one thing people really underestimate the power of having that kind of massive access to the people, so that's one uh, narrative. The other narrative um, that I'm not a huge fan of is depicting the tech companies as evil and saying that hey, they're wrong, they're evil, they should you know not exist in this society. They're destructive. And then a reasonable, rational customer would think, wait a minute, you know what? I love Amazon. It's so convenient. You know, my love. My life has become so much better thanks to Amazon. Um, I love Google. You know, it's so convenient. They're providing so much utility for free. So once you see an extreme argument, automatically it alienates the other, you know, um, rational people, and then you're losing the opportunity to really discuss the important matters. For example, all the talks that we're having regarding you know, the social media, those are really important. But if you just depict, you know, Facebook or Twitter as an evil company, um, I'm not sure if that's the best way to have discussion on the very important matter that affects our life a lot. Because again, what company, you know, in history had a chance to interact with their customers multiple times a day, like 70% of the population? That's, that's unbelievably uh, powerful.
0: Yeah, super powerful. And, and in an area where they're controlling information flows and can push in certain types of information more than others so so I guess mm-hmm. let me let me ask you this I, I mean I agree with you this this dichotomy between you know it, 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 they're purely evil um, or or under i think more more common is an underestimation of the power but do you think tech companies, however we define them, if they aren't too powerful now too powerful meaning you know somehow they become well. First of all, let me ask you: Do you think there's such a thing as a too powerful tech company?
1: I think they are. Uh, I'm not speaking academically, uh, but no. as a person who has who has been in the tech industry for about 20 years, um, I know the inside of you know. And I, I again, that's the reason I say that people actually underestimate the tech companies, not overestimate. Because again, look at the talent and the how. You know, they're, they're really talent if you really think about it, like the smartest people go there. So you should never underestimate a company uh, if they have such talent.
0: Okay. So they're too powerful. They're too powerful. Okay. Is there anything we can do about it at this point? Um, that's an interesting topic, and
1: I'm not an expert on that, but I don't think it's too late. And we should really have the right questions I'm not sure if it's the best way to actually try to come up with a solution. For example, a Congress trying to come up with a resolution to solve the problems. I'm not sure if you know uh, they can come up with the best solution. Again, it's difficult. Uh, the people in the tech industry are really smart and they evolve. So that might not be the best approach. First, I think admitting and understanding how powerful they are Is the basics. We have to start from there. Yeah. For example, you know, Amazon. If you think about it, people don't go to page two. They make a decision on the first page. Maybe they go to page two. They never go to page three, right? Right. That itself, that itself, is extremely powerful. It's totally different from us going to Walmart and you know walking down the aisles and picking up the product that I want. It's totally different. Totally different. So Amazon is powerful in that sense. Um, Facebook and Twitter, again, you know, how many times are they you know, pushing content to you? And there's always a debate about content moderation and, and freedom of speech and etc. And sometimes people say that they're just a platform, uh, so it's, so they shouldn't be responsible. And I totally disagree because let's let's get the facts very simple. Let's not deep dive into the complexity of the issue but just look into the simple facts a person a user posts something that's freedom of speech i'm good with that but once a tech company amplifies that content basically it's pushing you know that content to massive user base so basically a tech company did something did something yeah if they did something, of course, they should be responsible. So it, it's it's that simple, I think. Yeah. But again, if you try to come up with a solution, uh, I'm not sure if we can, you know, come up with the best solution. I think we we should begin with acknowledging the problem and try to define what the tech companies should disclose, because actually enforcing them to disclose a lot of things will increase our awareness. Wow, I didn't really know that, you know, they were amplifying the content this much. Wow, look at the most viral contents. I didn't realize that it was this harmful. So if the companies have to, I'm a huge believer of the power of disclosure. Once you do that, you have to self-correct. And, and, you know, um, yeah, the consumers really have the power in that sense.
0: So disclosure and transparency will be, in your opinion, much more effective than kind of descriptive regulatory frameworks.
1: That's what I believe, but, you know, I'm not a lawmaker. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm I'm not, you know, an expert in this matter. But, you know, disclosure and transparency, actually, it's really important in even leading a company. If you actually make them share their work, sometimes you even have to enforce them to share their work. Um, a lot of things can happen. A lot, if you really think about it, one of the reasons that companies are not that innovative is because they have so many silos, right. Right. And forcing them to share, you know, their work to everybody, to relevant parties, um, that could automatically, you know, create a more collaborative and innovative work culture. And actually that's what I did. Uh huh.
0: Yeah, interesting. So you, may, you did that at Kakao. It's the idea of, of transparency to get through the, 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 the silos. And maybe this is why I've seen you in other locations say that you don't really believe in top down innovation. You, you believe in this kind of bottom up innovation, correct? This is.
1: In, in a sense, right. Um, but it's always risky to overgeneralize something uh, sure. because top down innovation happens, especially if you are a startup with less than 50 employees, for example. Uh, Yeah, top-down totally works. But if you are, you know, a senior executive or a CEO who leads hundreds of people or thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, then it's a different story. In those cases, I I do not believe that top-down innovation works well because actually everything you do as a CEO at a large company, that's a signal. So for example, let's say you're having a meeting, you know, with your colleagues, and then let's say you ask the question like, um, is it really, is this market really attractive? That itself is a signal, right? Sure. Uh, from, from that point, it turns into an order and everyone who were in the meeting will say, hey, you know what? This Chihon CEO doesn't like this market. Let's drop it. Let's change it. Let's try to come up with something that he likes. Yeah. yeah. Not, it doesn't even have to be that explicit. For example, let's say somebody was um, presenting an idea and you were looking at your phone. That itself also says that you're not that interested. So there's a lot of harm that you can do as a senior executive or a CEO than good. And if you really think about it, unless you are a one product company, if you're a one product company, maybe a little bit different, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. if you have like multiple products and multiple businesses, um, again, I'm pretty sure that uh, your team has to do their work. You should be the person who creates an environment uh, for them to do their work. Yeah. So in that sense, they're the people who always think about it 24-7, right? So right. you shouldn't really be the person who gives an opinion because that slight opinion will turn into an order. Yes.
0: Yeah. And 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 your your behavior and what you say and what you do, I think many times senior leaders don't recognize how closely they're monitored by the people around them to give to give these signals. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so here I, I have I have uh, you've been super generous with your time. I want I want to uh, uh, be respectful of it. I have two more quick questions for you. So one about Korea. It seems like there's been a big international breakthrough in content in, in, in korean content right there's been movies that have been films that you have squid games you have all kinds of stuff coming out right parasite you have bts parasite you have you ha- all these things right all these things right. coming from coming from this this country in in southeast asia so so what what is it about, why has Korea been successful with these bre- breakthrough content across different cultures? What's the secret of that? Is, is, it, is it Korea's wealth? Is it its education system? Is it state support? Is there something about the culture that makes it attractive to other people? What, what do you think? Because I, I know you've written in other places that a key to success for, for, in your business with cacao is the content. So what is it about Korean content that is so attractive? I mean it's quite surprising
1: uh, even to me uh, even though I was a huge believer you know in content business and that's why Kakao invested so much in content I think but what we have to understand one it's not like state driven you know support I do not believe that that's going to be the case if that was the case it's going to be so easy for all the countries to become exactly. like you know the exactly. center of culture yeah. but I have to say that there's always the bright side of the story and the dark side to the story when it comes to when you're looking at a result and the grass is always greener on the other side, right? One of the biggest reason uh, that Korean content, including, you know, the artists like BTS and Blackpink, I think are successful is because the local market in South Korea is so much competitive. So, you know, we have like, thousands literally more than thousands and thousands of bts and blackpinks and out of those thousands you know only one become like the top and if you went through that process right right of course you're a good singer of course you're a good dancer it's like taking the best out of the best and they become you know they have the global competitiveness in a sense i think the same goes to you know movie industry like I realized that there are not that many countries that create movies in their local language, for example, for their local market. um, Pretty much like all the markets across the world are dominated by Hollywood movies in a sense, Mm. but South Korea is pretty unique in a sense that every year, each and every year, more than like hundreds, maybe thousands of movies are created so if you think about it the talent pool over there is very thick but the reason that i said that to all the bright sides of the story there's a dark side of the story like 95 percent of them fail right yeah it's so so the result that we're seeing here in the united states or the results that we see across the globe are the survivors of that brutal competition
0: right right interesting okay Final question, I ask all my guests this. Um, what is a book, a film, a play, podcast, music, anything where it can be fiction, nonfiction. Uh, since the pandemic started, a lot of us have been spending a lot of time at home. What, what, What's one thing you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Uh, I, I, I actually didn't do something unique.
0: Um, I didn't begin baking. I didn't
1: do any cooking, right? Uh, many were doing that. Um, I, of course, you know, binge watched a lot of TV shows. For example, The Morning Show, really, I really loved it, you know, from Apple TV. It really depicts how, you know, the behind story of a corporation. So I was like, wow, that is really brilliant. Um, maybe the other one that was pretty hilarious and, and brilliant was Um Working Moms uh on Netflix. It, it's a pretty good series, Canadian series. It's really fun. And when it comes to a book, actually something related to our conversation today, this book helped me a lot. Um, it's not a new book. I read it like 10 years ago, I think. The title of the book is The Click Moment. So basically it's, it's a series of stories of unexpected opportunities, like how these companies became successful. And most of the you know books, Really focus on the key success factors of those stories, right? This book actually focuses focuses on how unexpected these happened. For example, trying to explain that you know they didn't plan out to do this at all, right? Like, you know the original business plan was totally different, but all of a sudden, you know somebody came in, or somebody met someone, and they changed the direction, and it boomed. So it has a lot of examples of those. So this is like a book that I recommend to my students to tell them that, please, you know, again, you're all smart, but being smart is not enough. It's like a prerequisite. Everybody's smart. So, um, you know, understanding how the real work, you know, how the world really works um, helps you. And this is a great book to understand that, the click moment click moment. It's a great place to end.
0: Jehoon, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.